Brother Aylward wondered what would possess a man to attempt flight. Was it an envy of birds? Or had something else given Aylmer the idea? This is Allie Daniels. You're listening to Antimony. Episode 9 The Province of Birds and Angels. Before I tell you about what happened at Conlancon, you need to listen to another dream. The Gregorys did. This is Nurse Bereath, Dream Lab. Subject, Kaya Smith, GYSP student, anamnesis experiment, dream prompt, Samya. Transmission starts in 5, 4, 3, 2... Brother Aylward tugged his gray wool cloak up around his shoulders and shook his hands, trying to release the knots from his fingers and get some blood flowing into them. He reminded himself of one of the mistal thrushes who bathe in the horse's water trough outside the monastery stable, then flap their wings dry before taking flight. He was wearing his writing gloves the ash-colored ones with no fingertips, and his pudgy hands did resemble the little thrushes with their gray and white feathers and fat bellies. The monk would have been much happier wearing his felt mittens given the cold in the scriptorium, but they turned his deft hands into paws. His task as scripter, copying the monastery's manuscripts, demanded a precision impossible if his fingers couldn't guide his quill pen and drag the ink exactly where he intended it to go. The monk exhaled and saw his own breath. He chuckled, but it sounded more melancholy than cheerful. Brother Aylward tried to remain positive despite the recent hardships, which included the monasteries being on a restricted supply of firewood since Henry VIII had begun dissolving the monasteries three years earlier. Rumors wheeled like a flock of swallows that the king had his eye on Malmesbury too, despite its importance as a center for learning and the skills of its copyists. If gossips had any purchase on the truth, King Henry planned to strip the monastery of its treasures— and sell the entire property to one of his wealthy friends. Brother Aylward shook his head. 
Hadn't Jesus overturned the money changers' tables in the temples? And now here was the king planning to sell the temple itself. At least the monk had important work to do while they waited to see if the regal axe would indeed fall. He put his spectacles on and gazed out the window next to him. He needed his glasses to see any distance beyond a few feet, but his nearsight was perfect. He was certain that his visual sharpness, at least at short range, contributed to the excellence of his work as a copyist. He loved his work, but almost as much, he loved where he did his work. Abbot Geoffrey, about 300 years before, had moved all the script doors to where Aylward now served. In a room that shared a wall with the monastery kitchen on its west side, and the best windows in the abbey on the east, the light was ideal for their work, and during his brief breaks he put on his glasses and engaged in one of his great pleasures, watching the many birds who frequented the abbey grounds the little olive-brown chiff-chaffs who perched in the elms, the happy wrens who nested in the abbey stonework, the pit-pit meadows who sang as they took to the air and did not stop until they parachuted recklessly with wings half-closed back to terra firma. And, during times when the monastery knew plenty, the fires in the kitchen always burned, making the scriptorium delightfully warm. Aylward's work, the birds, the proximity to the kitchen, and the fact that the abbey's kitchener sometimes gave Brother Aylward extra food during the day contributed to the copious generous girth and made this the perfect assignment. Thinking of the possibility that the monastery would be shut brought a cloud of downheartedness around the monk despite his best efforts to trust in God's providence and hope that King Henry might yet relent. Brother Aylward watched as a sleek black jackdaw flew past and lighted on the gray stone tower that loomed over the abbey grounds to his right. The bird's silver head caught a glint of sunshine. It was from this tower that one of the abbey's most famous monks had once jumped not to commit that tragic sin of which one has no opportunity to repent, but in order to fly. Everyone knew about Brother Almer, who had lived 500 years before, who somehow had the notion that he could master the art of flight, which, as anyone knew, was the province of birds and angels alone. Mm. <laughs> and also winged insects and a flying squirrel and the exocidity, the so-called flying fish, although theirs is not true flight, but rather gliding. Brother Aylward found tales of flying unicorns and dragons far-fetched and did not believe they continued to exist at least since the time of Noah's flood. Despite the absurdity of his project, Brother Eilmer constructed a pair of wings from leather and wood and climbed the tower stairs to the roof 
on a particularly windy day. Using leather straps, he affixed the wings to his hands and his feet. Judging a moment he thought to be propitious, he climbed over the crenellation and flung himself off the tower, arms and legs extended, a great tonsured jackdaw. But with gray woolen stomach of monk's robe and pinions of calf hide and knotty pine. Brother Almer had flown just over a furlong before his experiment crashed to an end and broke both of his legs. He spent the rest of his life with a limp and a reputation for pushing the limits of what humans would be permitted by the divine. Brother Aylward wondered what would possess a man to attempt flight. Was it an envy of birds? Or had something else given Eilmer the idea? Aylward took off his spectacles, turned his head back to his desk, and got ready to begin his next task. He felt a small pang of regret that he had allowed himself even a short pause to shake his hands and gaze out the window. For the past year, monks in the scriptorium were assigned to work double shifts, excused from their routine chores in order to devote all their work time to copying. If Henry Rex did decide to sell off the contents of the monastery, the abbot did not want their collection to fall into the hands of people who would not respect the treasure of which the monks had been the stewards for nearly 800 years. The abbot knew it was possible that Henry, or one of his abettors, might allow the library to be ransacked, documents taken or burned for the thrill of mayhem, or to provide warmth. As the scriptor completed each copy, he took it to Brother Whiston, the armarius, head of the scriptorium, who alone knew whether the original or the copy was being sent out of the monastery for preservation, and where the documents were being stored. Brother Aylward thought that to have both pieces of information could tempt even the most pious among them to commit the sin of fraud or larceny. But, being obedient, he kept his thoughts of the possibility of trespass to himself. He looked at the next manuscript on the pile the librarian had left on his desk. Its label identified it as an acquisition from a sister Benedictine monastery in Disabodenburg, in the Rhineland. The monastery was well known even this far away. Their abbess had once been Hildegard, a woman, of course, yet a person of science, letters, music, and the arts. The manuscript before him was brief, just one page, front and back, with a splendid multicolored illumination along the top of the front page. Aylward leaned close so he could see the details of the pictures. The three frames were exquisitely executed and showed three biblical stories. The first, Aylward had rarely seen, although he knew the story. Large winged beings swoop down from heaven toward women with their arms raised as if to fend them off. Very tall men in gold and silver robes stood to the side. <sighs> Genesis 6, verse 4. 
The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them. He marveled at how effectively the Illuminator had portrayed a look of panic on the women's faces and the appearance of malice on the angels. Such emotion in a minuscule space. The next frame was easily identifiable. Genesis 6 and 7, Noah and the Ark. Tiny pairs of animals were lined up to board the ship, while storm clouds hung low overhead. Infinitesimal drops of rain were starting to fall. Aylward was cheered to see that the Illuminator had included several pairs of birds hovering around the ark, ready to gain refuge from the incipient flood. The third frame, like the first, was more rarely portrayed in Aylward's experience, yet he identified it immediately. It portrayed events of Genesis 9, the aftermath of Noah's drunkenness. Noah was the first man to plant vines and make wine, that substance so great a blessing and curse. The scene showed two moments. Noah's sons covering the unconscious Noah with a garment, and the subsequent cursing of Ham by Noah for Ham's having viewed his father's shame. Aylward nodded in appreciation of the Illuminator's work and prepared to begin what he thought would be a simple manuscript containing Genesis 6 through 9. Aylward always began his work with a prayer, and also by smoothing the parchment gently with his fingertips, as if connecting with his counterpart from centuries before, who might reach out to him from the page. It was a way to remember he was part of a long chain of preservers of tradition, handing sacred texts from one generation to the next. He felt something, even in his gentle graze. He touched the parchment again, just lightly, and was certain it bore something that he could feel, but not see. As he brushed from left to right, his fingertips taking in a couple of lines of the scriptural text, he could also feel a texture that did not match the elegant inked letters. He felt a pattern running vertically as well. He ran his fingers up and down the page and, indeed, felt the presence of another script written perpendicular to the one that appeared in the bold black characters he was assigned to copy. Closing his eyes so as not to be distracted by the visible script, he tried to detect with his fingers what might exist invisibly on the page. Was the page a palimpsest, a twice-used page? Brother Aylward was familiar with palimpsests. It was a common practice to reuse vellum and parchment because of their dearness. A good goatskin parchment or calfskin vellum should certainly be used again if at all possible, rather than being thrown away simply because the words were no longer considered valuable. Brother Aylward had seen the parchmenter at Malmesbury scrape the ink from a lovely piece of vellum using a very sharp lunellum 
its crescent-shaped blade reflecting shards of light from the fire all over the walls of the chamber in which he worked. But this was different. There were no signs of scraping. No one had tried to remove the writing he could feel but not see. Someone had inscribed lines of text over top of the horizontal lines of the Genesis story, in neat rows of some minuscule he could not identify. He turned the paper a quarter turn so the visible black lines were now sideways to him. He squinted and held the paper so that sunlight raked across it, to see if he could make out the letters. He could see shadowy raised letters embossed onto the page. But they were very faint and indecipherable. He scratched his head. The quickest and easiest thing to do would be to copy the writing he could see, be finished with his task, and move on to the next item in his pile. If this were a true palimpsest, the invisible writing was surely not the point of the manuscript. It served merely as an accidental backdrop for the text assigned to him. But the hidden writing was precise and filled the page. What if the hidden writing was the reason the old page had been saved? His first idea was to rub some graphite over the page and see if that revealed the hidden letters. He rejected the idea as quickly as it had come to him since he knew he would obscure the beautiful, visible text. The graphite would be difficult to remove entirely, and he could not imagine taking the damaged page to Brother Whiston and explaining that it was he who had desecrated the biblical text. He decided to go quickly to Brother Kendrick, who worked in the infirmary, and engage his assistance. Brother Kendrick was a man of slight build. If Brother Aylward were a mistle thrush, Brother Kendrick was a windchat, small and darting, moving from perch to perch. Even as Brother Aylward entered the infirmary, he could see the busy monk hopping from where a paste bubbled in an iron pot hanging over the fire to a low table on which strips of linen were waiting to be rolled for bandages to a glass cylinder whose vaporous contents looked like the monk's breath in the chill room. Brother Kendrick looked up and waved Brother Aylward to join him by the cylinder. I haven't long. He thrust the mysterious page under Brother Kendrick's pert nose and explained the problem. Try this. He handed Brother Aylward two small glass containers. One contained a dozen tiny gray metallic pellets. The other contained a clear liquid. When you're ready to proceed, dissolve the beads in the liquid. Use a fine brush and apply the solution carefully over where you feel each letter. If the letters were inscribed using an iron nib, the solution will stain any iron residue and bring the letters into full view. If nothing's there, you won't corrupt the beautiful, apparent text. Aylward thanked his friend and turned to go. Suddenly, Brother Kendrick's delicate hand lighted on Aylward's shoulder, causing the tiny pellets in the container in Aylward's hand to rattle. 
Whatever you do, do not ingest the beads or the solution. Use them carefully and do not eat or touch anything after handling them before you wash thoroughly. They are toxic and can be withstood inside the body in only very small doses. Bring everything you don't use back to me immediately. What are these? Antimony. When Aylward examined the script, he drew back in surprise. Not Latin, as he expected, but the very script of Abbess Hildegard herself, her lingua ignota. Aylward clapped his hands together in delight. He had seen, but never been asked to copy something by the great Abbess. And here was a manuscript written in her own language the one she had promoted as a universal language, a tongue that could be used and understood by all, a way to speak and write that would undo Babel. Aylward cherished the idea of the universality of language, although even these five centuries hence, her idea had not caught on. Scholars debated its name, lingua ignota, or unknown language. Was the name given by Hildegard herself, claiming some divine or unknown source for its origin? Or was it rather a taunt given later when it had failed in Hildegard's purpose for it? Aylward preferred the former interpretation. He had even taken the liberty of copying out her script and its grammar from a book in their library and he stored this copy at his desk. Monks are not supposed to own anything as individuals, as he well knew. He considered this not a private copy, but rather a tool, should the need for it ever arise. Having his own copy would save him the time of having to go to the library to find and retrieve the book. What a gift of providence that he should find himself holding such a manuscript. As he began to make the copy, he paused. Should he not allow himself the pleasure of not just copying, but also translating? Whenever else would he have the opportunity to read the words of Scripture in Abbess Hildegard's own language? Each translator brings something fresh, some small nuance, He promised himself only a verse, or possibly two, so that he did not spend too much precious time on this unrequired activity. But as he began, he noticed not the familiar words of Holy Scripture. He was sure they did not come from Genesis chapter 6, nor anywhere else he could remember. What he found instead, was this. My dear Noah, by now you have been given instructions you cannot comprehend for a purpose you cannot fathom. You fear that even if you comply, your efforts will ultimately be in vain, 
You must say yes. What is this document? Brother Aylward sat with the deciphered page in his hand, his heart racing and head ringing. He was now sure that the point of the manuscript, what made it so valuable and worth saving for all these centuries in Malmesbury's library, was not the Genesis stories, but the hidden text, recorded in the almost unknown lingua ignota. It was, in fact, a letter to Noah from his great-grandfather, the patriarch and scribe Enoch. The monk wiped his brow. He grabbed both his translation and the original page and hurried to the Armarius's room. Brother Whiston called out for Aylward to enter. I have found something that needs your immediate attention. Brother Whiston took the documents from his subordinate and looked at them, his eyebrows rising in apparent surprise as Brother Aylward relayed how he had discovered the hidden text. He brought it over to his desk where a candle was burning and held it close to the flame. Who else has seen this? Brother Kendrick saw the page. It was he who provided the solution to reveal the hidden script. But did he see what was written? No. I came directly to you as soon as I translated it. I realized that translation was beyond my task, but it seemed correct to me to attempt it. No one else has seen it. You have done well, Brother Aylward. Shall I proceed to make a copy of the now-revealed text for safekeeping? You have done well, and your attention to detail, as always, brings you credit. But your work on this is finished. Continue with your next manuscript. Yes, of course. Brother Aylward wished he could take one more look at the mysterious text. Perhaps he should have made a copy before bringing it to Brother Whiston. He could feel his face warm with shame for the doubt concerning his superior that was seeping in at the edges of his heart. Go now, brother. Do not mention this to anyone. It could cause unnecessary excitement, and at this moment productivity is more important than intrigue. Do you understand? Yes, brother. But as he assented, he fought the urge to snatch the pages back from the other monk's hand at least for one more look at what they contained. The angels will reward you for your work. Yes, brother. He thought Whiston's remark odd, blasphemous even. Why would the angels, rather than the Almighty, reward him? He stepped back into the hall and felt suddenly cold. The next manuscript was straightforward enough, a ninth-century copy of the Gospel according to Matthew without illustration. He was well into the second chapter and the story of the visit of the Magi, guided by the star to the babe at Bethlehem, then warned by an angel in a dream to return home by another way, when he put his quill down. Several hours had passed since he had given the Noah letter manuscript and translation to Brother Whiston, Yet his heart still felt heavy. He thought he should let go of his curiosity, which could lead to nothing good, 
but only distraction from the task at hand. But every mention of an angel in his new assignment, the visitation of an angel to Joseph to tell him about Mary's pregnancy with the Christ child, the angel's appearance to the Magi, another angelic visit to tell Joseph to take Mary and the baby to flee to Egypt to escape King Herod's wrath, brought Brother Whiston's strange benediction and dismissal to mind. Brother Aylward straightened from his hunched copying position and rubbed the back of his neck, rolling his head from side to side to work out the stiffness. Through the window, he caught a glimpse of a slim, dark shape moving toward the monastery entrance below. Donning his spectacles, he could see the shape was a person in a long black cloak. He presumed it would be a man coming to the monastery. But the figure moved like a woman and had the slight build of a woman. The cloak's hood was pulled high over the wearer's head, so only a soft jawline showed. The person had a confident stride, and the black cloak stood out against the snow that had fallen during the night. Aylward saw the door open, and the porter welcomed the visitor inside. A rule of the Benedictine order was to welcome everyone who arrived at the abbey. As the epistle to the Hebrews had admonished, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. He sighed and chastised himself. Return to your work. A verse of Psalm 42 came to mind. Why so restless, O my soul? Why so disquieted within me? Then he immediately began to recite the entire psalm aloud from the beginning. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. He stopped himself as the image of Brother Whiston came to mind. He removed his spectacles, said a brief prayer of rededication to his task, and started to copy Matthew chapter 3. He looked up again when he heard voices coming from the Armarius's chamber. One was Brother Whiston's, but the other was unfamiliar. In a monastery where every brother took a turn reading from the scriptures aloud during the offices and reciting from an edifying text during meals, He knew well every monk's voice. It must be the visitor, and the visitor must be a woman with such a high pitch. However, if smoke had a timbre, it would be this. Brother Aylward couldn't make out any of the words. Now he had been reduced to eavesdropping. May the Holy One forgive him. But he continued to try. What caught his attention was the sound of elation. Both voices were excited, giddy. He listened again. This was not the solemn joy that undergirded every holy mass. It was more like the scavenger magpies chattering chip, 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 
when she returns to her nest in triumph, clutching the broken body of the chick of another bird. He shuddered and thought of the dread counting song he had learned as a child, numbering magpies as ill omens. One for sorrow, two for stillbirth, three for dread, four for death, five for silver, six for gold, seven for a secret not to be told. The Armarius's chamber was quiet again. Brother Aylward could see, even without his glasses, the cloaked figure heading back across the snow with something under her arm. A manuscript chest? When the figure reached the gate, Aylward gasped. He thought he saw the black creature take flight and pause atop the abbey tower. He fumbled to raise his glasses to the bridge of his nose, just as he saw two glistening black wings unfurl and carry the creature out of sight. He must have his spectacles checked. Surely the lenses needed refitting to be playing such tricks of perspective. It must have been a raven. A moment later, Brother Whiston stood at Brother Aylward's desk. My brother, I have not forgotten the promise of your reward. The scriptor blinked up at the armarius. Um, I, I deserve no reward for, for fulfilling my appointed tasks. Aylward blinked nervously as he thought about how much he was not attending to his tasks. No, the angels await you. His eyes alighted on the glass container of antimony solution still sitting on the desk. But you must go greet them to inherit your reward. Brother Aylward followed the Armarius's gaze to the solution. Here is grace, brother. The look on Whiston's face made Aylward think of a cat clutching a dead sparrow. Drinking this will bring you to the angels faster and with less pain than my dispatching you. He spoke into Aylward's ear while he pressed the sharp tip of a lunellum into Aylward's side. But why? And the angels will not welcome me for drinking poison by my own hand, as you well know. I did not say which angels. And he tilted the glass container into Aylward's parted lips. is Allie Daniels. Thank you for listening to Antimony. This podcast was written by Amy Richter and is based on the novel Antimony, published by Whipfenstock. Copyright 2019. The novel is available at whipfenstock.com, amazon.com, and other online booksellers. Music was composed and arranged by Pan Conrad. You've been listening to the voices of the Silver Linings Players, a group of volunteers from all over the world who came together virtually during the COVID-19 pandemic to record this podcast for you. Episode 9 features, in order of appearance, Lydia Brower as Kaya, Amy Richter as narrator, and 
Phyllis Everett as Nurse Bereath, Stephen Keeler as Brother Aylward, Simon Tibbs as Brother Kendrick, David Copley as Brother Whiston, and Kristen Pageant as The Visitor. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend and give it a rating or review so others can find it too. We'll be back soon with Episode 10.